Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tegal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Mary Christian, Senior Vice President of Regulatory at Lindra Therapeutics. To say Mary has an impressive track record is a bit of an understatement. Across the last three decades, she has worked for some of the biggest pharma companies in the world, including J&J and BMS. She's also worked for several fast-growing biotech companies, including Ironwood, Cyclarion, and now Lindra in senior regulatory and quality roles. She's also a guest lecturer, a mentor to many, and a trustee at the Centre for Great Expectations. Hey, Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Roman. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And um, what we what we like to do at the start, Mary, to kind of give our listeners a little bit of context is uh, it'd be great if you could spend the first couple of minutes kind of talking through your um, incredible background and the various roles that you've had uh, over your career uh, and also what you do now in, in your kind of most recent roles just to kind of give everyone uh, a bit of a bit of a backdrop. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a pharmacist by training and started my career in uh, hospital and community pharmacy a long time ago, uh, and um, really did that because it was something that I had always felt very passionate about, being able to to talk to patients about their medicines and help them take them in the best way possible to optimize their outcomes, um, and uh, spent a lot of time during those first few years raising a family as well, um, and recognized that the career I actually, my, my, my dream career was to be working in the pharmaceutical industry where I could be um, addressing the needs of more than one patient at a time. Uh, and so I went back to school while I was um, working in the, as an active pharmacist and got my PharmD and then an MBA that would help kind of jumpstart my career back into industry when I um, when I was ready. And uh, I did that. Uh, my first position was, as you mentioned, at Johnson & Johnson in, um, in medical information and moved on to regulatory affairs at J&J, PRD, which is now Janssen, uh, and was fortunate to work with a lot of great people, learning a lot about how the regulated world is um, works and how I could uh, work in it in the best way to advance medicines to patients. Uh, shortly, well, I was there for about 11, eight years at, um, at J&J and then moved on to Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, and did the same there in regulatory, uh, initially developing some new biologics and, uh, and other medicines uh, and then evolved my career um, journey to have responsibilities of regulatory affairs in the Middle East and Africa region, um, in addition to having the global and U.S. experience. And then moved on uh, also within regulatory at BMS to be responsible for their later stage products, their mature portfolio, which was also incredibly interesting and, and fun to, to learn and, and get kind of a space around how we maintain those the products that have been successfully developed. Um, during that time, I um, had a great learning experience and was tapped by uh, one of my um, colleagues there to 
build a new capability at the company in uh, oncology, which was uh, really the, one of the large focus areas of BMS of late. Um, and that was in strategic collaborations, working with academic and community uh, research organizations in the oncology space to optimize the research that the companies can do together. Uh, so I did that and really found uh, also a, a great uh, experience in not only working with colleagues outside of the, uh, the company, but uh, still working in kind of that same frame of having um, communicating what we're doing and the success of what I was doing in my role with an external organization and then trying to find ways that we can optimize the work together. Um, during that time, I was uh, approached by Ironwood Pharmaceuticals and uh, asked if I was interested in coming, making a leap from a really large company, as you noted, to a, a smaller biotech organization that had a bit of uh, tenure already. It was almost 20 years old when I joined, but still very focused in, in a few areas. Uh, and they were looking for someone to lead the regulatory organization and to build it out, um, being more um, broad than it had been previously. So I thought that sounds like a wonderful opportunity to, to get my foot in a biotech organization to see what that's like, because I've always been surrounded by really large infrastructures and, and lots of really experienced colleagues, um, and often a pathway that had already been forged in, in what I was doing. So came up to, the, came to Cambridge uh, to work at Ironwood and um, was really excited about that and met some incredible people and had some great opportunities. Um, and shortly thereafter, the company made the decision that they were going to actually split into two companies, one being more the commercially oriented GI business and the other being more of the R&D um, space. And so I was asked where I you know, would like to see myself uh, and uh, I, select, I opted for the R&D organization and was given an expanded role of regulatory, but also responsible for safety and quality. So building a new company, building a new organization was a ton of fun and I got to greet again, really wonderful people and, um, and had just a great time doing that and uh, really accomplished the goal that I had set for myself, which was around learning the, the kind of ins and outs of starting a new company and building a, a great, uh, framework for how a company could be successful. Um, and around that time, uh, I had the opportunity, been, I was contacted by Lindra Therapeutics, uh, where I am today. And I have to tell you, I was doing some introspection at the time around my own kind of passion and mission in life and uh, where I am in my career, which is a little bit on the, on the I would say, beyond the midpoint of my career anyway. <laughs> Uh, and, and I thought, you know, I really want to do something that's more public, public health oriented. And, and, you know, it came in just uh, in concert with this uh, outreach from Melindra uh, to head their regulatory organization and really build the, continue to build the company, which is small but strong. Um, and, uh, and with a mission that was just so um, uh, spot on for me around reinventing medicine for a healthier world. And so here we're evaluating um, technology that came out of Bob Langer's lab at MIT, uh, which is focused on a long, ultra long acting oral delivery uh, dosage form for uh, patients. And the, the concept that our, um, our board of directors will, will talk about is we're not changing the patient, we're going to change the pill 
to improve adherence and, and reduce the, the cost and the um, adverse events associated with in, incomplete medication adherence. So having a, an ultra-long-acting therapy that can a patient could take a pill once, uh, once a week, maybe once a month, and get a really steady uh, PK uh, release of that drug and profile of the drug um, over that time. So that's what we're, we're doing. We're at clinical stage right now and, and entering phase two. It's just a, a really wonderful place to be. And again, just found myself surrounded by wonderful people who are passionate about getting this, uh, getting the work done and about addressing patients' unmet needs. Great. And it's interesting because, you know, I wanted you to really kind of talk about the incredible background that you've got. So I'm grateful that you you did that and you didn't miss anything out, which is is fantastic. Now I've got you know so many questions <laughs> to ask you following that. And the first one I, I want to start with was you spent the kind of uh, a big chunk of your career working for kind of classically big big pharma companies, and then obviously took the decision to move to kind of faster, smaller uh, companies in in the space, particularly in the biotech space. How, how have you found the difference between the two? And it's interesting to know that the business that you're at now is a smaller one rather than a larger one. Is that a reflection on kind of where you are in your career or, um, you know, how, how have you found kind of you know, the culture difference or the speed or you, is it just more exciting being in smaller companies? Just curious to know what that's been like, that kind of uh, that contrast between the two. Yeah, that one of the things I will say is even when I was at a large company, I always kind of gravitated toward organizations within the company that were smaller and, and a bit more um, nimble. I would say the exception to that is probably the BMS oncology space, but um, but there it was you know tasked with kind of forming a new kind of capability, which was also kind of small. And so I had really really had an affinity for kind of the small, fast, nimble. Uh, way of working, except at the large companies, you always had behind you this infrastructure that was large and steady and, and well-funded. And, and so that was, you always had kind of that, uh, that safety net uh, behind you. I don't always have that in, in smaller companies, but I really wanted to find out what that was like. And I heard all of these stories about the innovation that occurs in the Cambridge, Boston area. And, and I thought, you know, if, if things are moving so fast, people are really advancing medicine so quickly. Um, I, I just wanted to be part of that. And here at Lindra, that's exactly what I've found. It's, it's, I mentioned the passion, but folks are just taking decisions on a daily basis, um, empowered to take decisions and, and moving things forward. I mean, I was on a call earlier today where, you know, we're looking to iterate to the next, the, the next evolution of, of a particular platform. And, and the question was asked, well, when will we have, you know, if you're testing this today, when will we have the answers? And the answer back was, uh, well, in three days, I'll have this. And by you know, six days, I'll have that. And so we can make the decision and move to the next step. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. That's, I mean, it's not crazy. It's great. It's, it's, uh, it's energizing, but it's, it, it is really, I think, the essence of what we, what I think, what I thought of when I think about Cambridge or innovation, um, that kind of speed and that kind of energy. And so I'm just super glad to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Great. And just again, looking at your kind of career path, is there a particular Oh, actually, let me rephrase this. What would you kind of attribute 
your kind of career success to and over a, obviously a significant period of time as well you've managed to um grow into new roles and and stay at places for a significant amount of time as well is there a you know is is that down to just your own personal ambition uh, i noted that you were plucked and kind of <laughs> touted in all of your roles to go somewhere else as well so obviously you've got a, a good reputation so i'm just kind of interested to know whether uh, you know, there's something within your makeup that kind of, uh, you know, wants to try new things, but also a particular thing that people see in you that all, you know, always wants them to, you know, uh, you know, pluck Mary from somewhere and bring them into their own organizations. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I doubt there's one thing that I could point to to say that that's, you know, this is the reason why I've been successful, but I will say the first thing has always been my family and the support of my family behind this. And I joked at each of those, kind of mentioned it as a, as a bullet point right now, I went back to school and did this and did that. And, you know, I, when I received those degrees, it was, you know, at a time where I had you know, married, I have three small children and, you know, I accepted those degrees on their behalf. Uh, because I couldn't possibly have done those things without their support and without, you know, them recognizing that I'm sitting at the table doing homework while they're sitting at the table doing homework. And and today we, you know, maybe dinner's going to be takeout, um, but, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which they never minded, I don't think. But um, it was so a lot of it was was having that support network. And I will say that just personally, the the kind of the qualities that that I find super helpful in in bringing about that kind of success is that I, I I trust people I have you know confidence in the people around me and I always try to surround myself with people who are smarter better more experienced than I am in whatever the expertise is and um, I think you know coming forward to Cyclarion you know when I was asked to take on quality and safety as well. I, I could only do that by having people working with me who knew much more about each of those things than I did. And so I'm quite com- comfortable in that, in that setting. I hope I can bring to that, uh, to the, that table or that experience other things that complement the way they, can, they work and can be, we can all be successful together. But I have relied heavily on, on a great and strong team in each of these examples and each of the roles that I've been in. Great, I, I love that, and it's it's a it is very much a common theme that I see speaking to uh, leaders in the in the pharma pharma and biotech sector like yourself that talk very openly about building um, you know strong teams around themselves of you know to use your words kind of smarter better people which is a kind of a secret of the success of many many people and I wanted to just ask about one of one of the reasons I think for our listeners actually is. I was really keen to get you on was not only obviously the incredible experience you've got, but the interaction that you would have had with, uh, you know, the, the outsourcing space and vendors over the last you know 30 years or so and, and seeing in how, how that has changed. So, um, and I know many of our listeners would be uh, intrigued to get that kind of insight from someone yourself as to how, how your experience has been uh, of using vendors and uh, good, good, good practice and bad practice. So I'm going to kind of ask a few questions around that. So I suppose very broadly speaking, how in the time that you've been in the industry, how have things changed in terms of use of vendors and use of contract service providers, whether it's, you know, CROs or consultants or, you know, co- contract manufacturers have you seen that change over the uh, you know over the last 20 30 years or so 
without without a doubt, it has changed dramatically. And, and I'm thinking quickly of an experience when I was at, at John, Johnson and Johnson at uh, Janssen <clears throat> in the research organization in the clinical research where we had a CRO partners actually in one, one in one program a, a number of CRO partners, and it was very transactional. Uh, the experience was, you know, this was our timeline, this was where we need to go, and, you know, if, if they could do it or couldn't do it. And then at my experience at BMS, where, especially in the, um, in the established brand space, we had rationalized the portfolio significantly, going from a much more targeted number of products and number of countries that we were present in, as a matter of fact, and, and reliance on our internal uh, changing, switching the reliance from our internal uh, manufacturing to uh, a network of CMOs, in, in especially in those uh, established brands. And in doing so, we really required a shift from that transactional thinking to, you know, how do we partner together to do this successfully? We, I was responsible for some of the smaller regions of countries of the world where we didn't have a BMS footprint and how we would partner with a, a local agent to provide regulatory services for us, to provide commercial activities and support uh, medical activities for us locally. And there the, the, the relationship or the partnership becomes more like a, an extension of the company. And that was critical in that case as we were shifting our organization. And then I moved to like the, the, to the more recent experience in the small companies. And I think that I'm unclear for, to me, actually, if it's only a small company phenomenon or if it's really how the industry is shifting, where I bring on a, I call it a strategic partner, um, whether it's a full service provider for regulatory services or for quality or for safety services, where we as the company want to retain kind of the strategic thinking about how we are, go, where we're going forward and how we want to do that. But we need a, a a partner, a strategic partner who can understand what that looks like, understand the the why, the question kind of behind the question, why are we doing that in that way? And then um, and help us help to uh, partner with us to get to that that objective, that goal. Um, and so I, I found that those kinds of relationships um, have been much more robust and it's been successful or more successful where we can set that, establish that kind of baseline and understanding and partnership at the beginning. And we consider that company or that partner a, a true extension of our company's team. Yeah, it's, that's such uh, an interesting insight there. And interesting enough, we were one of the interviews that I did a few months back uh, with, a, with a gentleman uh, called Gene, who works for a, a company called Medfarm, and he actually, from the, the flip side, he spent his the best part of thirty years on the kind of contract services vendor side. He almost said that identical to what you said there, in that there's been a shift over the years from that kind of transactional towards kind of partner, and then that strategic partner piece, almost mm-hmm. like the partners become more of an added value partner rather than transactional. And and there there will be obviously an element of transactional still for you know large scale you know commercial mm-hmm. manufacturing um and you, you mentioned there around kind of full service um so i was kind of really interested to get your view on you know when you're looking for partners uh you know in, in the various areas that you you look at and obviously 
do you do you see a difference between kind of if you like you know one-stop shop type CROs that can do everything versus say you know choosing three or four specially you know special specialist partners that can do uh, certain things particularly well are you seeing uh, you know, a shift towards one over the other or is there a situation where one's one's more valuable than uh, than the other or and i'm sure it depends on the specific circumstances but any trends that you're seeing in that area would be really really interesting yeah i think you've said it exactly right i and now i was going to say it's my regulatory answer is always it depends um, <laughs> because i think it truly does whether you, you choose to have a network of, of um, suppliers or providers who can who can deliver what it is you need, or you can find that one house or that one shop where they have built the, the structure such that they have that expertise across um, a multitude of uh, functional areas or, or support areas. Um, and, and so we, you know, recently have done a, a, um, a due diligence trying to select a partner. And in some cases, uh, it's been the one where, because my, my first, walking into it, my initial position was I'd rather have one stop, right, where I can minimizing contracting, minimizing the, the interface and the handoffs and minimizing a lot of those kinds of things seemed like a great idea. And then as I delved into it a little bit more deeply, what I was instead finding is actually it's hard to be a master of all of these things without being a huge company. And when you're a huge company, what I found was they may have all of those specialties that I needed, but they're almost as siloed within the large company as they would be as if, if I were to, to find kind of that best provider independently. And so it, the, the, the savings that I initially thought I was going to get by, by you know, I don't mean just financial, but time savings and efficiencies by having one umbrella organization wasn't actually what I was getting. So, um, so we shifted to, to more of that, the specialty areas. And are you able to talk uh, to that process of what that looked like? Because I was going to ask you about, you know, how does a biotech company go about searching for a vendor? And Obviously, this is a relatively recent experience, but, you know, I imagine it's very different when you're in a big pharma companies where, where you've got you know, preferred suppliers or a list of uh, vendors that you can go to. But when you're in that kind of smaller, scrappier biotech environment, what does that search look like? You know, is it you, you know, using people that you know? Is it you know, Googling? Is it going to events? And obviously that's difficult at the minute with COVID. So I'm sure our mm-hmm. listeners would be kind of, uh, you know, would be really kind of interesting in any any insight you've got and what what that process looks like. Yeah, I think the process isn't terribly different, honestly. Uh, large company to small, um, it may be more streamlined in a small company. So at BMS Experience, where I was selecting a regulatory service provider, um, as we were looking to outsource a lot of the, the execution aspects of the older products, uh, the mature product, to ena- enable us to. Um, redeploy our internal resources to the more um, the developing products where the the, um, support may be different and and, um, more aligned with our strategy. So in in that experience, we looked at, I looked at two dozen different companies and we had a whole procurement organization 
who in the, internally who was able to support that effort. And I had more Excel spreadsheets that, you know, of different questionnaires that had gone out and responses that had come up. It was super complicated. Um, and then, but I had a whole team of people who were supporting that complexity of, of making the selection. <clears throat> And then fast forward a few years to a more recent experience in, in the biotech space where I was trying to find that, um, that safety partner, a pharmacovigilance partner. And um, instead, I went to my network uh, first and said, okay, where do I know and who have I worked with before and who have, where have I seen some really great depth and strength maybe at different conferences or just from personal reference um, and, and went to a very small, you know, kind of a part-time procurement person in the organization and said, like, this is what I think. What do you think? And together we came up with a short list of about six companies that we thought would probably be worth talking to. And, and the process then evolved from there. Similarly with questionnaires, with an RFI, RFP, um, but it was just much more streamlined because the, the, the assumption for me was if we're looking at if not multinational companies, large companies that have as their um, among their customers companies like you know, Biogen or, um, or Novartis or Johnson and Johnson or you know, Merck, if they're their customers already, we can assume certain things are, are baked into what the offering that they'll provide us. So I'm not yeah. going to dive too deeply into that. They've already met the the bar at these companies. So let's let's instead focus on what we need as a company. What are the specific things that, or the way we work, that they'd have to kind of um, be knitted into uh, to be successful with us. And, and that's how we focus our diligence. That's fascinating. It's so interesting, the, the kind of contrast between the two as well. But, uh, you know, and ultimately I was, I was kind of, little smile when you said, you know, you went to your network first. And it's funny, and it doesn't matter how much technology <laughs> is at our fingertips in the world, there's nothing uh, more effective than, hey, who would you use for this? You know, it's like it's like a restaurant Absolutely. recommendation. That's it's incredible, that, that kind of power of word of mouth and reputation. That's right. I think if there was a Yelp for these things, right, would be great. <laughs> You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And then my final question around this kind of uh, kind of vendor and partnership place is just kind of any general kind of good practice in, in bad practice type examples, obviously not giving specific names away, but <laughs> just, you know, like describe what a good partner relationship looks like and also you know, are there where relationships have fallen down with vendors? Do you ever see commonality between you know why why these things happen? Uh, just obviously, given your breadth of experience, you, you've probably seen this happen a few times, both the good and the bad. Yeah, yeah. So I think it starts at the very beginning, in my opinion, where you have um, you put out the RFI RFP, and when I would get back, especially in the small in the, in the biotech space, if I got back basically a canned presentation or a canned response that wasn't answering the questions that were part of what I needed to know. Um, that was very telling to me that either you're very busy and you don't have time to customize the response to me, um, or you didn't read it and you're really not listening to me and, and you haven't even gotten my business yet. 
<laughs> so if you're not listening to me now, <laughs> um, it's not really doesn't bode well for what will happen when we when we've already signed a contract, right? So, so I think that's that's kind of a, a example of what bad looks like. And then um, as the relationship uh, emerges and builds, it really be, it, it's clear to me from the beginning, off usually, that this is going to work or it's not. And I think some of the things that you, you know, initially coming together and having the, the partner understand what your goals are. What are you trying to accomplish? And frankly, telling me what their goals are. So if their goal is to carve out a business within their big business for biotech, and they want to be the preferred partner for biotechs, um, then I can help them do that. Because if, if they may need to know more about the way we think and the way we work and why we make choices we make, um, and that will help them grow their business, I can help them with that. And then on the other side, of course, I expect them to be helping me achieve my goals. But we have to be very clear about what those are at the beginning or we're setting ourselves up for, you know, for not a great partnership. Um, and, and then along the way, checking in regularly, having like I just in the when my current in my lender experience, um, we rely on a full service provider. Um, and I uh, came on the team and, and I said, oh, so this is how we're working together. You know, I'd love to be able to see behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, so when do you guys do you guys meet regularly to talk about our business? And can I be part of that? And they were quite open to it and said, yes, of course. You know, if you could, if we have a weekly meeting to talk about what you know what we're doing in your for your and for your for your company and and for your needs. And you know, that'd be great for you to tell a broader group of people at the company, at the partner company, how how you're thinking and how this is evolving and what are the next big you know, milestones you need to hit. And so give us a little bit of insights behind your curtain too, that would really be helpful. And so I think those type of conversations over time, they are time consuming, but I think they are well worth the investment of time to ensure that the partnership remains strong and it remains positive for both entities. I think that's great, great advice there. And it comes back to what you talked about before in that terms of, strategic partnerships and actually acting as a partner but on both sides of the fence that it's not just all on the vendor but you as the client taking an interest in in the vendor as well which I think is uh, is refreshing to hear and um, I wanted to kind of shift gears slightly and you know the speaking of people that have worked with you you are described as a really great leader, which I know is probably going to make you blush and put you on the spot. <laughs> but I hear great things about you as as a leader. And so I'm just kind of curious to know what, what advice you would have for other kind of people developing their career in, in this space, particularly around the kind of leadership uh, kind of angle. You know, what what is it that makes you a good leader or are there any particular skills that you possess or you know, things that you do that that you think is a you know an important part of, of, of being a uh, you know, senior leader in a, in a business mm-hmm. well I think I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier around having um, being supportive of the team that surrounds me or, or that you know that I'm part of and and you know being willing, especially in a small company, you know, to roll up my sleeves and do what has to be done to get um, to get the job done. Which, you know, I, I, it's funny here at Linda. I have uh, heard a colleague say, 
head of manufacturing to say, I, I was in the, the plant, I was in the manufacturing facility the other day, working side by side with some of the uh, the, the folks on the on the team, and uh, and I said, oh, well, that, that's great. And he goes, well, I, I should do that. I should be, I should see what they're doing, see what it's like, and and show them that I'm there with them. Um, it's a very difficult time we're in, in right now, and it's, I think that's important. And and I said, I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. I wish I could do more of that because you know, we, if we were all together in one space, it would be, it would be much more, much easier to do. But you know, let's find way. I think I can find ways through Zoom or or other platforms that we're using as a company to stay connected to folks and and on my onboarding, trying to to go down into the, you know in. Everyone I talk to, I, I want to talk to. Give me two more names that I can talk to, so I can get to know, you know, who's who here and, and how they're working. And, and so I think just being a, again, it's almost a partner with your team, um, the same way that the, the vendor partnership relationships are, are going. It's it's about understanding what makes people tick. And and I think actually during the COVID time, where we all have Zoom fatigue, but you're able to see the in, in, get insights into someone's um, own world that you may take years to do in a, an office setting. You know, one colleague who has a toddler, almost a toddler, I don't know if he's quite a toddler yet, but who sometimes it will appear on his Zoom call. <laughs> and you know, and when you hear him little chatting or you know as singing or something, it's just it's heartwarming, honestly. But it also reminds me like, oh, you know, you know, he has other things he's doing. And so if I drop a, a you know, a pin or, you know, ask if to, for a one-on-one real quickly, you know, it, I know what he's, I have a little, I don't know what he's dealing with, but I have an insight, a little bit of insight into what he may be dealing with or, or that the, someone else may be pulled in three directions because they've got you know, three different laptops going in the, in the house over um, their, for their children being Zoom educated or having to, you know, stay busy and they're overseeing that as well as attending my meeting. So how do we, you know, schedule our time that it makes sense for for everyone. So anyway, just those kinds of things I think as a as a leader kind of trying to put yourself in the shoes of the people you work with helps and um I was going to say something about work-life balance, but I'm, I'm, my husband will, will laugh because he <laughs> believes that this, I don't have such a thing. But I'm at a point in my career where it's, it's I recognize it's a lot easier for me. Um, and and I, I, I hearken back to my days at, at J&J or BMS where I was um, leading some of the women's organizations, the resource groups, people in business resource groups. And, and I heard a woman say one time that one of the reasons she thought women were were not as often leaders in companies was because they may opt out. And, and I said, oh, you got to tell me more about that because I, I, that's not my experience. And I'd love to know uh, why you think that's the case or why that's your experience. And she said, well, I look at some of the people who are in senior leader roles in the company who are women. And she said, albeit there's few of them, um, you know, very few of them. But when I see they're either single, married with no children, or you know, have made choices that I won't want to make around time spent with my family, and or I can't afford to make because I can't afford to have an au pair, I can't afford to have someone who does these things. And I said, wait a minute, you're 33 years old. <laughs> Your finances today are not the finances that you'll have in 10 or 20 years when you're being asked to or interviewed for a vice president's position. So in your life circumstances, your your finances, your your 
family situation, your children's ages, all of these things will change. So don't assume that you're comparing just rocketing your life today into that world. You'll have time to get there. Just as the men in those roles had time to get there and, and work out ways to balance these things. So don't opt out. Yeah. Don't opt yourself out um, without that that insight. And I, as I, as I started, I, I'm at a very blessed pe- point in my life where I don't have those obligations of small children, except my grandchildren, one of my choice, um, who uh, who are running around and you know needing my attention immediately. I rarely get a text from one of my children who are my three children who are grown that says, I need to talk to you now. Um, you know, they're, they're grown, married, you know, two of them are married and having families of their own. Um, but what I do, I take it. You know, if that happens, I take that call. Um, but it just doesn't happen that often. So, um, so I do have the, the flexibility to say at nine o'clock, I'm going to go back in and, and you know, answer a few emails or review a couple of documents. And it's not any, it's not any kind of a burden for me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's actually, I'm probably not worth watching some car show that my husband wants to watch. <laughs> so it, it's all good. I actually prefer this. <laughs> everyone, everyone's a winner. I was, I was, yeah, I was laughing there when you, you mentioned, you know, your colleague with the toddler and a few weeks ago I was, I was on a call in my, uh, my middle son, he, and the night before I was teaching him about switching lights off because it wastes energy, it's bad for the environment, it's cost us money, all that type of thing. And mm-hmm. I was on a call with a client in, the client's based in, in the Netherlands and I was sat and I didn't actually see him. He, he must have come in the room like, you know, like a ninja, like mm-hmm. assassin. <laughs> and he came in and without me even realizing, switch all the all three lights off. So two lamps. And then I was like, what, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm saving energy. And he's just going around. But, but, you know, and, and it's funny, it's, you know, my client's laughing, laughing his head off. But, you know, mm-hmm. like at the, just getting that insight into the reality of, uh, you know, into people's lives and, uh, and I've just so we've got another five minutes or so, and I wanted to ask you about a few a few things before uh, before our kind of uh, time together comes to an end on the episode. And tell me about the Center for Great Expectations because you've been part of that for some years now, and it seems like you do some amazing work there. And yeah, it's a cause that you're clearly passionate about. So it'd be great if you could just spend you know a minute or so just talking about what what that's all about and the impact that you have on on people's lives. Uh, sure, sure. Now that that is a, a near and dear organization to my heart. Um, it's uh, an organization based in New Jersey, and they uh, serve uh, women and, and families who are battling with uh, substance use disorders. Um, also, trying to raise families or have children, um, and many of them have no stable home. So initially, it was built uh, for it's an organization. The, the infrastructure or the buildings, the, the facilities are focused on um, adolescent and adult women uh, and their children. And it provides the, the network uh, and tools needed. Once they have come to us to say, I need, I'm looking for help in my journey, we would provide them with the tools and resources um, and a safe home, a safe place, a safe path forward for them to be successful in their journeys and, and in their decision to kind of break the cycle of uh, mental health disorder, opioid use disorder, substance use disorders, and be better parents for their children. Um, we also provide 
a community-based services for um, men and women to do along the same lines, and now also providing kind of the tools for a broader audience uh, to kind of learn from the techniques and the, the uh, programs curricula we've employed there around trauma-informed care, so solving the problems that generated the disorders that folks are dealing with and having to address that head on. And, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a powerful organization. I can't be as, as well um, integrated into everything that they're doing uh, since I've been up in, in Boston, but um, I support them nonetheless and, and really admire the, the work that they're doing and, and try to do anything I can to support it. Uh, and, and coming back to Lindra, that's you know, interestingly one of the things that was attractive to me is the program on developing a, an ultra-long-acting oral medication for the support of opioid use disorder maintenance treatment. Um, and so we're working on buprenorphine and uh, methadone products to do just that because it's uh, it, that's one of it's a small component of the daily life of someone who is in recovery, but part of that could be the need for daily treatment um, of methadone. And, you know, if you're trying to get your life back on track and trying to you know, have a job and you're doing it to take out every single day to get to get or, or a few times a week to be able to get that, that medication is just not helpful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so targeting this kind of a long acting uh, delivery system is just really a wonderful uh, advantage. And, and so, you know, trying to tie those things together. And it's, uh, it's it's really been quite uh, powerful for me to be part of both of these organizations. Yeah, I, c- I can imagine, and it sounds like the uh, organization does some uh, you know really noble and worthwhile work in in the community that it serves, and particularly at this time, <laughs> you know, with, mm-hmm. with life as it is now, I imagine that's a, such an important service to to help people. And my final question was a very general one but just your thoughts on you know the impact of covid on on the kind of drug development sector on the industry at large i think you mentioned that you're a phase two um company yourself so just any general thoughts on how you think uh you know the the current pandemic is going to impact the sector both in the short term and the long term, are you, are you expecting any real changes to the sector long term? So, yeah, anything anything you could share would be uh, would be really interesting. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. The um, so I think for COVID, it has uh, definitely had an impact, and it will change. It has changed not only the way we're operating today as an industry and as people, but I think it will. These many of these changes will survive, and it's great that they will. Frankly, um, so some of the things that I've seen change. The, there was, there has always been, or always is probably an overstatement, but over the last 10, maybe 20 years, uh, discussions around decentralized clinical trials or remote monitoring of clinical trials, or, you know, how do we do, rethink the way we're even developing drugs, um, especially from a clinical space. So COVID has forced us into applying or embracing some of these ideas of remote clinical trials or remote uh, tools in clinical trials, whether that's direct delivery of investigational medicines to a patient's home or monitoring tools like Fitbits or some type of electronic monitoring that a patient wears that instead of having daily blood pressure monitoring or weekly visits to a site, 
that they can re relay this information directly to the, to the investigator or to the site um, uh, from their homes. Uh, we've been we've been placed in a position where we had to do those in order to continue effectively our clinical development work. In some cases, it's it's you know, rethinking the way the trials are conducted in in many other ways. But I think that those kinds of insights and innovations around uh, the actual execution of a clinical trial have changed and will continue to change. I mean, we at Linda have been really fortunate that our clinical programs have continued virtually uninterrupted, and and which has really been an impressive feat for the clinical operations team and the clinical research team and the manufacturing teams to be able to continue to deliver this. But some of that is because the 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 delivery system, the the pill, if you will, in air quotes here, um, is able to be instead of worrying about you know a bottle of a hundred pills, we're delivering four in a blister pack or four capsules, which will cover a month's time. You know, so so that's that's amazing. Uh, we've also partnered with incredible sites who have and and the CRO partners who have also been passionate about what we're doing and and have prioritized the work and you know, putting in the appropriate protections for patients, of course, because patient safety is always a paramount uh, concern, but making sure that they can continue um, to, to, to execute the studies in, in a way that uh, provides us the information we need to continue to progress. So interesting. Yeah. 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 Is there a, you said there around uh, your clinical trials had been not not impacted hugely is that is that because they were already designed in a way i suppose was it fortune rather than adaptation did you guys have to hugely adapt or was that just a you know, the way that this trial was set up in a in a kind of smart way in the, in the first place so so i think a little bit of both um i think there were um you know uh, previously a, a previous company um, earlier this year it was a, we had a shift a bit uh, during the the conduct of the trial to to react to what the new world required um, and here at Lindra I think it was a, a lot more about proactive planning and thinking about how do we do this innovatively it's it's a company that is just grounded in innovation from the get-go so they the studies were designed in ways that they could adapt very easily and and I think also it's a uh, it, it's about that you know, selecting sites. We're doing clinical research uh, not only in the United States, so we're also and mindful of the states that are being selected. So that you know, if the if the study requires you know, patients to stay in house or patients to come visit, can that can that state and that local um, environment accommodate that? Mm -hmm. So I think there are many levers, uh, many levels under which uh, those kind of thoughtful decisions were, were made that enabled us to continue pretty pretty well uninterrupted. Fascinating. I'm, I'm sure we could spend another <laughs> an hour or so just talking about clinical trials and uh, the impact. So um, so we've come to the end of the, the episode. And um, honestly, Mary, I, I think I could talk to you all day. Your experience is incredible. And you're obviously a great leader and a very caring person. And um, there the was one actually final thing was I've just more out of curiosity than anything is is there any kind of quotations that you live your life by or that you come uh you know that you 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 come back to every so often you, you strike me as someone that um is obviously very well read and you know 
play play an active role in education community is there any quotes that you know that have been important to you in, in your life I don't think there's actually a quote um I, I mean I think as a philosophy I've, I've always you know been tried to pay my 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 wealth my experience my privilege forward uh in a way that it can be useful to someone else um I am strong feelings about mentoring and coaching individuals and try to do that. And, and when I'm doing, when I'm working with someone or talking with a group of, of folks, um, that's always an ask of mine that what you're doing and you're receiving, you know, pay that forward in a way that it can help to develop uh, other people who may not have the privilege of your network, who may not have the privilege of your experience and the access that you may have and make sure to, to kind of pay that forward. That's great. I, lo- I love that. As, and it's uh, probably a, a fitting place to, to end our conversation and our time with you on Molecule to Market. So thank you so much, Mary, for, for taking the time and, and being with us and yeah, for sharing your, your insights. Well, thank you, Raman. It's been a pleasure. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.